Hello and welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. My name is Jackson Dohart. I am the guest host for today. I'm joined by Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and an expert on Canadian-Chinese relations, which is great because uh, China is in the news very much with allegations of Chinese meddling in Canadian elections and a testy exchange between our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, recently at the G20 summit. Uh, thank you very much, Charles, for joining us. It's great to be on the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to talk about that exchange between Xi and, and Justin Trudeau, but I wanted to start by taking things back a little bit. Uh, you were a student at one point in China, and I was wondering if you could tell us when that was and what your impressions were of the country then, specifically uh, its political leadership. Yes. Well, when Canada established diplomatic relations with China um, in 1970, uh, there was a program agreed to by our uh, Minister of External Affairs and the Chinese Premier of the State Council, Zhou Enlai, to exchange 10 students from each country. So I was one of the 10 in my year uh, who was sent to study in, in China. I'd, I'd already learnt uh, Chinese at Cambridge University, so I was able to you know fit into the program there. This was uh, the class of 77 which actually entered university in 1978. It was the first class that had entered uh, university in China after the disruption of the Cultural Revolution. Most of my uh, roommates and classmates were about 30 years old, having graduated high school, um, you know, 65, 66, 67, and then getting into university in 78. Um, at that time, you know, it was a very optimistic period. Uh, Chairman Mao had died. Um, when I first got there, the, there were portraits of Chairman Mao and his successor, Hua Guofeng, above the blackboard in the classroom in about the same place in my elementary school classroom where we had a portrait of Her Majesty the Queen. Um, but uh, the ideological restrictions were gradually being removed and the professors at the university who had been sent out to labor in the people's communes or were working in factories or in prison were gradually what they referred to as rehabilitated and returned to to work in the university. So I had an opportunity um, to have a lot of access to very distinguished Chinese scholars who had, you know, become uh, prominent before the revolution in 1949, who had just been returned to university after 10 years of, you know, prison or hard labor hell. I studied um, the history of Chinese ancient thought in the philosophy department, so I was reading ancient Chinese texts. But, you know, there was still a lot of politics there. Um, um, you know, we still labored in the people's commune fields as part of the uh, part of the um, curriculum. But uh, there was great optimism among the students about the future of China, the end of of the policies of repressive revolution, and um, the prospect of bringing China into the global community as a democratic uh, nation that had enormous potential. Unfortunately, um, by the 1980s, that dream was shattered. But at the time I was there, it was an extremely good time. 
and I would say that you know the opportunity for a Canadian to so fully integrate into the Chinese society and university has long passed. I mean, I had the same conditions pretty much as the as any of the domestic students. Um, the Chinese authorities wouldn't allow a Canadian to uh, to get so close and so intimate with the realities of China today. So it was a great experience for me. I stayed there for uh, four years with virtually no contact uh, to Canada over that period because, you know, this is pre-internet and uh, pre-easy long-distance telephoning and uh, came back to Canada really quite transformed by the experience. So you've uh, established yourself as, as one of the great critics of Chinese policy here in Canada. I was wondering if you could talk about the the formation of those views. How much of that was when you were a student? How much of it was during your time working there uh, in, in the diplomatic service? Well, uh, you know, uh, certainly I was very pleased to see the economic rise of China. You know, when I was a student there, everything was rationed, um, uh, particularly food. And so we really didn't get enough to eat. I, I lost an awful lot of weight uh, while I was there because the rice ration just wasn't enough. And I, I eventually had my, my family mail food in from Canada. But, um, you know, when I was working in the embassy, I was very much taken with the idea that if um, Chinese people became aware of how a democratic society like Canada works, that this is something that they would want for their country. So, you know, we put a lot of Canadian taxpayers' dollars, I think probably close to a billion, into what was called um, Good Governance, Democratic Development, Human Rights Programming. And so on my second posting at the uh, Canadian Embassy in Beijing, I I was uh, working out of the political section in the civil society program, which was a program to try and encourage uh, a Chinese non-profit sector, you know, to encourage the establishment of uh, parallel to, say, the Canadian Cancer Society or any number of, of organizations where citizens take responsibility for their society. And we had programs um, to train um, Chinese judges. We built a building in Beijing for uh, um, preparation for a large-scale program of exchange uh, primarily with the University of Montreal. And we had a lot of other programming designed to try and um, bring the Canadian way over. And I, I was the Canadian, I think, most involved in the bilateral human rights dialogues, which uh, went on for about, I don't know, um, six or seven years from the late 90s until uh, the middle 2000s. And, you know, we had hoped that if senior Chinese people in positions of policymaking authority understood how our democratic system functions, what an independent rule of law is, uh, how, you know, one has these arm's length relationships with civil society, including uh, free press uh, function, that they would want that for China. Um, you know, I think in retrospect, there was a high degree of naivete. I think the Chinese authorities agreed to these programs, uh, providing Canada provided serious funding for infrastructural and other development that met the needs of the Chinese communist planning process. And in, in 2005, I was uh, engaged by what was the 
uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, now known as GAC, Global Affairs Canada, to write an assessment of the dialogues. And I went around China trying to find out what the impact of these dialogues had been. And I found that really uh, the Chinese seemed to regard human rights dialoguing as something they were doing for Canada so that, for example, if there was a question in the House of Commons about the arrest of, of say, a political distant or a Catholic bishop, the um, appropriate minister could get up and say, uh, yes, we're addressing these concerns through a confidential dialogue process that's kept confidential so it'll be effective, but trust us, you know, we're doing what we can to promote uh, Canadian values in China. This uh, turns out to have been, you know, um, pretty pretty dissembling. And after my report came out, um, the Chinese government changed their ven- venue for their dialogue process from the organizations department to the uh, bilateral uh, desks of their foreign ministry and and the international process in Brussels for nations to compare their uh, bilateral dialogues with China was um, was closed down. And I think that the last of the dialogues ended just a couple of years ago. The Australians had one where quite senior Australian officials were involved, um, thereby requiring their Chinese counterparts to participate. The Canadian dialogue was never taken that seriously by the government of Canada. And, uh, you know, I, I think after that, I developed a degree of cynicism about the prospects for China to become a responsible stakeholder in global affairs and felt more and more um, concerned about uh, what China's rise would mean for um, China domestically and for um, uh, China's role in the world. And I think that, uh, you know, I started to to really, um, you know, start to 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 write opinion pieces as new newspapers and do um, um, a lot of uh, commentary on China and evidence to various uh, Canadian parliamentary committees. Um, you know, my my report on the human rights dialogue was considered by the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, they, their report was never released by the government, though Parliament died before it came out. But I think about 2006, I started to to try and uh, and ring the bell of concern over China, and you know, not to be immodest about it, I think a lot of what I have been writing over the past uh, 15 years um, is standing up pretty well to the test of time today. And I, I must say, I'm gratified to see that. While, uh, you know, a few years ago I might have been seen as an extreme element, uh, conspiracy theorist, you know, um, a panicky uh, commentator, I think now my views are more or less in the mainstream, particularly in the United States and uh, Europe and increasingly in Canada. So it's good to see that there are a lot more people singing from my song sheet and I think uh, articulating what I've thought for a long time um, better than I can myself. How does Canada fit into China's global strategy? You mentioned in a recent op-ed piece of yours that I read that uh, Canada is China's chew toy, I believe was your term. What, what, did, you, uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I, I think that China does have um, domestic factors where the where the Chinese regime wants to convince uh, people in China that the autocratic one-party system under the charismatic strong man 
for life, perhaps. Leadership of Xi Jinping is the is the best way for a country to be run. And I think that, um, you know, saying um, negative things about Canada and Canadians in the Chinese media is a means to try and um, emphasize uh, this point, what they refer to as the confidence in um, the Chinese political system and the idea that China uh, would assume global hegemony um, in their belief that the United States is a power in terminal decline and the replacement of institutions of global governance like the UN or of, um, you know, intended to ensure free and fair and reciprocal trade like the WTO and replace them by Xi Jinping's doctrine of the community of the common destiny of mankind, which is really a world run, um, you know, subservient, where all the nations of the world are subservient to China and their Belt and Road um, International Economic Infrastructure Program of ports and um, and rail and and uh, and in fact real roads extending between China and Eurasia and uh, you know potentially North America they do there have been some speculation they could run something over the Bering Strait and all the way down but um, you know this is really about a program where the belts and roads all terminate in China and so China would not only be the political center of the world, it would also be um, the economic center of the world, and countries like Canada would um, provide the raw materials and um, political support for uh, for China's larger agenda, which Mr. Xi hopes to realize by 2049 or 2050, the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. I mean, the, the plan is audacious and in my view, unlikely to be realized, but you know that is what informs um, China's policy. And so, in that context, you're not going to have you know equal relations between sovereign states. The notion of state sovereignty is subordinated to this idea of of China. What they what they refer to as rejuvenation, in other words, a restoration of the traditional cosmology where the only legitimate authority in the world is the emperor, the son of heaven, and um, and that civilization extends in concentric circles from the Chinese capital. And so, you know, other regimes are just not legitimate in the sense of having any ultimate authority, but simply to to um, administer barbarians who are out of the direct administration of the central authority. That, you know, that was China's traditional view of itself. Um, also, perhaps not able to be verified through sound historiography, but that's the way it was written. And I think Xi Jinping sees himself as, you know, a new period emperor. He's recently said that the Chinese Communist Party has broken the cycle of dynasties. In other words, he's not expecting there to be any change in um, the political paradigm in China ever now. There were 24 dynasties in history. Arguably, his could be the 25th. And that um, and that we should accept this reality and get used to it. And Canada should understand its place in the world. And, um, you know, the dynamic that you saw between Xi Jinping and our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, where he was treated with a high degree of disdain and perceived as by Xi, who 
muttered at the end of the interaction, naive, is the way that China sees the world and the way that China wants Canada to be in relation to China. So, you know, there are a lot of concerns there about China's intentions. It's not that this will be realized, but that China is um, attempting to make this the, the future reality and and is adjusting its international programming and its uh, interference in Canada's domestic politics accordingly. What did you make of that exchange? Um, you know, obviously you talk about Xi's language and his uh, apparent uh, kind of uh, contempt, perhaps, for, for Trudeau. But what about Trudeau's reaction? He certainly seemed to be not expecting it. I think that Mr. Trudeau did not expect it, and I, it wasn't scheduled, and I'm I'm not sure the degree to which it was planned, but it was recorded. I mean, Mr. Xi seems to have seen uh, Trudeau somewhere between sessions heading for a coffee or something and and come up to him for a few seconds and given him a thorough dressing down of, um, you know, a boss to a subordinate, using language which, you know, really has a certain kind of mafia thuggish to it, particularly aspect to it, you know, particularly when he said, in effect, if you're not going to respect us and play according to our norms, then uh, I can't really say what might happen, which is the literal translation of, uh, you know, what what he said. So it, it, it wasn't any kind of normal diplomatic language, but bore a, a resemblance to this wolf warrior diplomacy that we've seen by some Chinese ambassadors serving abroad, particularly the ambassador before our current one, Lu Chayet, who has continued with this kind of thing in France. The French don't seem to take it quite as uh, uh, readily as the Canadians did, and uh, the foreign ministry. But it's the first time that I've heard Xi Jinping be so utterly rude and uh, and you know, direct in his uh, suggestion that if Canada doesn't get in line with China, woe betide us because, you know, China will retaliate. And and I think that it does suggest that we'll be seeing some form of Chinese retaliation if the Indo-Pacific policy that, you know, is touted to come out in a few weeks, it's been touted to come out in a few weeks, of course, for some time, uh, actually is a policy which attempts to uh, address uh, China's, um, you know, uh, expansionist activities in the region by us sending more military support to Australia, the UK, and the US in the Indo-Pacific. And if we, in fact, start to seriously constrain China's espionage activities in Canada, uh, illegal police operations designed to intimidate persons here in Canada, and um, and uh, start expelling Chinese diplomats who are responsible for these um, Chinese Communist Party United Front Work Department activities, which is what this kind of of interference um, in uh, Canada's approach to China consists in. Uh, if that if we if we do that, I think China will feel it has to retaliate because it not only wants to send a message of punishment to Canada, but also wants to indicate to other lesser countries that if they're going to seriously challenge what China's doing, that China will extract a cost. And and I think up to now, Canada has turned a blind eye to this kind of appalling uh, behavior by the Chinese regime in our country because um, there are you know, important economic players who want Canada to 
um, maintain its its market access and and uh, preferential um, treatment by the Chinese regime, and if Canada cracks down on non-economic activities by the regime, preparing for this community of the common destiny of mankind, that uh, we could be punished economically. So, you know, uh, that seems to be the dynamic that's existed up until recently. But I think now that the Americans are more or less on our case, um, you know, Secretary Blinken was in Canada in October, and after that, Canada agreed to engage in a strategic dialogue on Indo-Pacific policy with the United States and requested that we be admitted to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity Program, which the United States had invited 14 countries to and had fairly markedly excluded Canada from. So. I think that you know our policy is changing because of increasing awareness of the dangers of Chinese malign activities in Canada, but also because it could impact on our alliance with the United States, particularly the um, continued viability of Canada's membership in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Consortium, which is very important to Canada, not just with regard to countries like China, Russia, and Iran, but also the border and the Arctic. So, you know, it, it's uh, the the whole Xi-Trudeau interaction in Bali, I think, is a kind of signal event that uh, that suggests that Canada had better get its act together on China pretty soon, or we'll be very sorry as the balance uh, tips away from the United States and towards China by default. We'll be back with more full comment in a moment. Tell us more about the police stations. I mean, I think those are a particularly egregious uh, institution and maybe a little bit about the benign justification that China has given to them that perhaps you don't accept. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, uh, you know, the Chinese say, oh, yes, we have police stations in Canada. That's a perfectly normal thing. Uh, and it's because there's so many Chinese in Canada that uh, have been able to, unable to return to China because of the COVID restrictions and need to renew their driver's licenses. And apparently these things are supposed to provide driver's license renewal. I must say, uh, following the Chinese, uh, Canadian Chinese press and uh, media and so on, I've never heard of of uh, any uh, advertisement saying if you need your driver's license renewed, uh, Chinese driver's license renewed, here's the address you can go to and and get it, uh, get a new one. But, um, you know, for a long time, uh, China has been sending uh, their police into Canada on false uh, pretenses uh, with a view to um, pressuring persons in Canada to uh, render themselves back to China to face um, uh, charges. And, you know, this is based on the um, um, reality that there is no extradition treaty between Canada and China for very good reasons. China does not follow due process of law. China does not follow the internationally recognized rules of evidence. Uh, China engages in um, pervasive use of torture and interrogation. And China applies the death penalty to a wide, wide range of offenses. So we have no extradition treaty. So we do know that, um, you know, in the past, particularly in one um, um, refugee hearing that I was uh, involved in as a witness, that the Chinese 
police admitted uh, that it was true as the uh, head of the immigration section in the Canadian Embassy in Beijing, Susan Gregson, testified at the time that they had um, got a, f an, a fake invitation from a Canadian firm to invite um, people into Canada for a purpose of uh, trade negotiations and uh, you know the names that that were provided to our immigration authorities were the names of police officers and um, the brother of the uh, refugee claimant, uh, Lai Shui Chiang. The refugee claimant was Lai Changxing, a, a major um, smuggler. Um, you know, they came to uh, Vancouver, spent several days with Mr. Lai trying to convince him to render himself back to China. Um, Mr. Lai refused and applied for refugee status the next day. And these police then returned to uh, China, and subsequently, Mr. Lai's brother, who had come to Vancouver with the police, uh, died in prison under mysterious circumstances. So, you know, we know this goes on, and there's even a TV series in China on this fox hunt operation, which is ostensibly to induce Chinese officials who have um, um, come to Canada with um, massive assets of dubious provenance, uh, escaping factional struggle or, or criminal investigations in China to get them to come back to China and, and uh, to, repa to repatriate those assets. So, you know, it's not as if the Chinese are making a secret of this because they, you know, they, they describe it in a TV drama um, with, I don't know, about 70 episodes. So, um, you know, it's really about hiding in plain sight and I think that surely our uh, authorities have been aware of these uh, police operations and uh, have have not seen fit to uh, constrain them. And now we hear that China's setting up um, these, I think, 55 or so around the world, uh, permanent installations to convenience this operation as opposed to, you know, them coming in ad hoc case after case. So, you know, it uh, seems outrageous that Canada would not um, close those things down, um, bring to court anybody who is behaving uh, illegally or who is in Canada on false um, um, visa claims, and and that we should declare persona non grata um, those Chinese diplomats in the Chinese embassy and consulates in Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, uh, who are coordinating this activity. I mean, there are a lot more Chinese diplomats um, accredited to Canada than um, than the diplomatic cohort of any other nation, including the United States. So, you know, they do seem to have a lot of people here, and I think we should be wondering exactly why they need so many people in our country. Um, you know, presumably Chinese diplomats are not functioning less efficiently than those of other nations, so one could draw the likely assumption that they are engaged in activities which are not compatible with their diplomatic status, and that should their, their diplomatic status should therefore be revoked. On the election meddling, what is the, uh, you know, strategic aim? Is it to to just keep, uh, you know, criticism of China at bay from Canadian politics? Or is it deeper than that? Is it to try to, in some way, uh, guide uh, Canada's uh, attitude toward China or its government policy? Well, this has been a long-time policy of the United Front Work Department. Again, you know, not hidden. I mean, you can read the documents about this, and they want 
more persons of ethnic Chinese origin to be involved in um, becoming elected to democratic legislatures. And, uh, you know, they want to, to influence uh, politicians through various inducements. Now, of course, you know, there are two issues here. One is that naturally uh, we want our parliaments and provincial legislatures and municipal governments to reflect the diversity of Canada. And so it's highly desirable that we have more people of Chinese origin in positions of political authority in our country. You know, that goes without saying. But the the difficulty is that there are some um, uh, politicians in Canada, some of them of Chinese ethnic origin, some of them not, who seem to consistently articulate the positions of the government of, of China and who we suspect may be the recipients of uh, benefits from the Chinese state. So what we would like uh, would be for there to be a Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act comparable to that of the Australian legislation of 2018 that requires people who are in the political process and the policy process if they are recipients of benefits from a foreign state, directly or indirectly, that they should be required to declare it so that any conflict of interest that they may have could be assessed uh, by, um, you know, by Canadian people who might vote or might not vote for them. And um, this has been very much opposed by uh, certain politicians as you know, on all sorts of grounds, such as, you know, it, what's going on in Australia couldn't possibly be happening here in Canada, or it would violate the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, or that our um, um, police and security agencies are already fully in command of the situation. So the more people complain about how we shouldn't have this kind of act, the more concerned I get that maybe we really do need it. And uh, certainly it's very hard for us currently to to track this once someone retires from public service um, if they become appointed to a China related law firm or a board of a Chinese company you know that there's no um, there's no reason why that isn't a perfectly legitimate thing to do uh, you know there's no laws being broken it simply uh, gives me a sense of unease as to whether this could be a reward for how they um, uh, handled their advice to government uh, while on the taxpayer's um, dime in positions of trust. So I'm, I'm very much supportive of legislation that would require transparency uh, among people who receive foreign benefits. And then, you know, once we've got that, I think it might dampen the willingness of, of Canadian politicians and senior civil servants to receive those benefits. And certainly that's what's happened in Australia. You know, they legislation may not be very well drafted. The Australian government may not have allocated sufficient resources to enforce it, but the simple existence of this kind of legislation does seem to have led to a number of uh, former politicians and civil servants resigning from China-related positions and is probably um, causing people who might want to uh, benefit from, you know, what my friend at the Royal United Services Institute in London, Charlie Parton, refers to as life-transforming amounts <laughs> of money. So, you know, it's. Uh, I hope that this will be something that we'll see 
on the Canadian legislative agenda very soon. I've certainly been, you know, uh, trying to to uh, bring this up over and over again in in various um, public comments and and editorials, and I think the idea does have some uh, traction, and we have seen uh, uh, some legislation introduced private members in commons and uh, the senate which china is taking enormous exception to you mentioned australia a couple of times do you think that australia serves as a kind of cautionary tale for canada uh in terms of relations with china well i think that um you know australia is certainly paying a much greater cost than canada would pay for its um, um policy on china designed to protect australian security and sovereignty i mean you know our um, external commodity trade to china amounts to only about four percent of uh, of what we sell abroad and it's mostly agricultural commodities and minerals that for which there is a global market so if china engages in economic coercion against us and refuses to take our soybeans they're going to be buying more from brazil and you know then that'll open up market space for us so um, obviously we don't want to be um too dependent on the chinese market for anything and we always want to diversify our trading partners but you know it's not as disastrous for us as it might be for australia that's sending more like a third of their external commodities trade to china particularly things like wine and uh, coal iron ore so um i think you know some investigations were done in australia there was quite a a famous report by um uh in the australian news where the australian former minister of international trade andrew robb who had negotiated the free trade agreement between australia and china that um you know an agreement that china wanted canada to more or less cut and paste at the time but which our authorities in the civil service said just wasn't was just too much uh, in favor of the chinese side and we wouldn't want that anyway andrew robb uh, was involved in negotiating that trade agreement he was involved in the 99 year lease on the port of darwin to a chinese billionaire huang xiangmo and an agreement between darwin and the chinese port of rujiao for a sort of sister port arrangement subsequently it was discovered that this chinese billionaire huang xiangmo um had was giving mr rob an $880,000 a year private consultancy um so there again nothing illegal in that um mr rob anyone who's receiving $880,000 a year for a part-time job is obviously a very good consultant it certainly uh uh, a thousand times i think more than my fees for consulting on china um and uh, i think that this then was what led to you know discussion of um this issue of 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 uh, benefits from the chinese state going to um persons in australia and of course australia was also involved in the um Australia UK US Indo-Pacific Security um uh, consortium and uh has been much more active in challenging China you know one of the things that China has been complaining about with Australia has been um um Australia's demand that China should allow an impartial international investigation of the sources of the uh, COVID-19 virus so you know China takes enormous exception to to that which 
in itself, I think, is rather suspicious, isn't that? The Shakespearean me thinks he complains too much. Um, and, um, um, you know, China made, I think it was 18 demands of Australia for areas of policy that China wanted to see changed or the same sort of thing as we saw in Bali or else. Australia has resisted. And then you'll notice that in Bali, the Australian Prime Minister got a proper um, bilateral meeting with Xi Jinping at which he was quite conciliatory towards Mr. Albanese, unlike uh, Canada, which is not. So it seems that countries that you know, show a bit of grit and and don't allow themselves to be cowed or appease China seem to gain more respect and I think relations with China go better. And so I, I do think that there is a lot for us to look at with Australia, you know, a comparable country with comparable values, with um, comparable political and economic systems that is managing the China relationship much more effectively than Canada is. So you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Canada does need more Australia in its China policy. And I think Australia is quite prepared to assist us in uh, trying to get our um, laws and practices into effect. Because, you know, the more countries that are allied in a common approach to China, the uh, the more leverage we'll have to counter China's expansionist and other malign activities in those countries. Is there a inherent risk in deepening our economic ties with China? I know that there's the idea of this distinction that we want to shore up our diplomatic uh, interests, our security interests, but also, um, you know, deepen our market access in China. But is it not true that if we're more economically dependent on China, then we are more dependent on China? Yeah, I mean, China functions as an integrated party, state, military, um, business complex. So, you know, uh, China always does things for a reason. So when you see China providing uh, enormous investment in some uh, third world ports along um, the Belt and Road Initiative, then you cannot help but think that, um, you know, that's not just about um, improving port facilities to get Chinese natural, uh, to get uh, third third, uh, country uh, natural resources to China to feed China's growth, but that over time China will likely ask that, um, you know, maybe Chinese submarines could could uh, come into those ports or that perhaps China could establish a military base uh, next to those ports. And a lot of the Chinese funding for these things uh, has been um, generous, not based on on sound principles of economics, but often um, showing a tolerance for uh, corruption by the third world country leaders that then leads to that country getting into debt, which then further increases China's leverage over them and has led in some cases to China taking on um, long leases, typically 99-year lease, uh, leases on, on these port facilities, which then um, you know really would provide China with a geostrategic possibility. So you know, the more we uh, become dependent on our trade with China, the more leverage China has to insist that we comply with China's demands that could be damaging to our um, geopolitics. And, you know, we've seen that with the uh, Chinese ambassador uh, being uh, 
very dismissive of Canada's uh, foreign investment review process, uh, suggesting that uh, Canada really should allow, say, um, the Huawei uh, 5G um, hardware and software into our Canadian telecommunications and that we shouldn't be uh, restricting China's acquisition of Canadian firms that are producing, uh, have technologies that have a dual-use military um, uh, civil um, application and that we should be allowing China complete and free access to investment in Canadian infrastructure and um, and mines and you know the Acon construction uh, which came close to being acquired by a Chinese state firm um, which would have given you know China a lot of advantages uh, in terms of knowledge of our infrastructure and and uh, ability to have information that could be very critically useful to China if there is a a conflict between China and the West in years ahead, possibly over Taiwan or something else. So, you know, the more that we invest, uh, that we allow China to invest in Canada, the more we become dependent on China, the more possibilities they are for China to, in the context of its increasing comprehensive rise to power, to um, uh, coerce us in ways which would be damaging to our um, sovereignty, security, and alliance with our partners. So, you know, obviously it's a very good idea for us to try and seek markets elsewhere to diversify our risk um, and uh, and to ensure that we don't see ourselves drawn into a situation that would be very economically damaging for Canada to get out of. How much of our struggle is is simply a matter of cultural difference. I mean, Canada is a very young country compared to China, which is a millennia-old uh, society. Um, you know, are they playing at a much longer and larger game than we're even able to comprehend? And is that part of the reason why we perhaps are are naive about what can be accomplished vis-a-vis China? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly the the sense of history is there. I think Mr. Xi sees himself not just as, you know, a possible um, um, acolyte of Stalin, but uh, as um, someone following the path of the first emperor of the Qin in 221 BC. Um, You know, so I think that there is this sense of of China's historical destiny and and seeing the um, you know the relative decline of China in global power as being a blip in the longer sense of history. I I do remember uh, when I was a student in China going to uh, stay with uh, the family of one of my uh, roommates in a rural area of China in Shandong and. You know, I uh, as a sort of conversation piece, I said, "Gee, I don't. I guess you don't get too many foreigners in these parts." Uh, and they said, "No, that's not the case." And made reference to the Mongol hordes out under uh, Genghis Khan, who had passed through the village in the 14th century. So, you know, they do uh, have a sense of history. But I think, in general, we don't appreciate that. You know, the institutions are not compatible. Canadian universities, you know, who have a mandate for the um, creation and dissemination of knowledge are cooperating with Chinese universities, assuming that Chinese universities are similarly based on the principle of the neutral advance of knowledge and science, whereas Chinese universities are all functions of the Chinese state, 
the professors are all um, civil servants and subject to direction by the Chinese Communist Party. And when Chinese scholars collaborate with Canadian scholars, it's often in areas of dual-use military technologies where they um, are attempting to obtain technologies of use to the Chinese uh, Communist Party's People's Liberation Army and that our universities are happy to see our intellectual property be transferred to China because the universities are interested simply in pushing forward the bounds of science. They're not so interested in what happens with the technology. So, you know, it's these kind of, I guess, similar to false cognates in language where we assume that Chinese institutions are comparable to our own, and they aren't. You know, the the, China, the Canadian Parliamentary Exchange with the National People's Congress. I mean, the National People's Congress is simply a, a rubber stamp legislature subject to the authority of the Chinese Communist Party. The members of the National People's Congress have no constituency responsibilities because they are not elected but, you know, assigned by the organization uh, department of the Chinese Communist Party through various processes. So the idea that we could have an exchange between our democratic parliamentarians and China's parliament is absurd. It simply provides legitimacy and uh, false um, understanding of China's civil political institutions, which uh, allows them to deceive Canada about China's overall intentions. And, you know, I think we have to be more aware of this. But right now, you know, can Canadians are in general a naive and perhaps greedy people who... Um, are not uh, prepared to face the reality that our engagement with China is not as China depicts it to us. Dr. Burton, I feel like we could have gone on for probably another whole 45 minutes, but unfortunately we're out of time. Uh, we thank you a lot for your insights today and for, uh, for joining us and our listeners. It's very good to speak with you. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm guest host Jackson Dohart. This episode was produced by Andre Pou with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or leaving a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.